Acts 21, starting at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts about because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Acts 21, reading from verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, 
I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? In 2021, uh, the supermarket M&S launched a lawsuit against the discount retailer Aldi. Uh, The topic? Cake. Uh, More precisely, Colin the Caterpillar Cakes. The Aldi regulars amongst us will know that the supermarket has a cheeky habit of designing its own brand products to look strikingly similar to the popular brands albeit with a slashed price tag. M&S, they took issue with Cuthbert, an Aldi Caterpillar birthday cake, who bore a surprising resemblance to their dear Colin. Now, in the lawsuit, M&S claimed that their desire was to protect Colin and our reputation for freshness, quality, innovation, and value. But do you hear the implication? Cuthbert, Aldi's offering, he's not fresh, not quality, just a shoddy imitation. At M&S, they worried that their loyal customers could get confused about whether they were in an M&S or an Aldi. And I wonder if sometimes um, people see us Christians uh, with some sort of similar confusion. Uh, perhaps we know what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, but those around us, they have a whole range of ideas, don't they, about what Christianity is. Oh, you're a Christian. Uh, that must mean... Dot, dot, dot. And then we try to patiently explain, uh, but people assume that they know what it means. And for the most part, whatever fills that gap uh, comes from the media or the religious establishment, wherever you are. 
forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their ideas about what it means to be a Christian come from the vicar of Dibley, uh, the royal wedding, and the school trip they took as a child to St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, Take our Sunday gathering, for instance. Uh, Most of the time, I don't feel like a Cuthbert rather than a genuine Colin, and especially not here. Uh, Well, normally, there are lots of us here in the building, and we've got a very religious-looking building. Uh, But what about that time that people look in on our church and say with a surprised look on their face, but you you don't do this, or, or you don't have that, or it doesn't feel special, or holy, or worshipful? at least compared to that prettier or holier or more vibrant church just up the road. I wonder if we could start to worry, are we just a shoddy imitation? And if that's us, what about the church plant that we might join at some point in our life that meets in an ice cream shop because that's the only venue they can access? Or what if we were forced to leave this building and meet in a school down the road or in homes? Because, of course, wherever we are, there will always be an old church that looks more religious just down the road. Where identity is threatened, where we're at risk of feeling like shoddy imitations, like Cuthbert's rather than Collins, we need some identity formation, which is what Luke has in mind in this passage of Acts. Because if people are confused about us, the first Christians, they had it much worse Uh, But in their case, the comparison wasn't with the church up the road. It was with Judaism, uh, focused on the temple. Uh, Many of the first Christians, they were Jews, uh, but the relationship between church and temple really wasn't clear. It wasn't straightforward, and it led to a great deal of confusion. And as you've heard in our passage, we dropped in on Paul in the middle of such a confusion. Uh, In Paul's case, um, you could probably call it more of a riot, Everyone is shouting, temple gates are being slammed, punches are being thrown, Paul's in the middle being dragged about and beaten up. People are pouring out of their homes from all around Jerusalem to join in the fray. A mob is forming and the Roman riot police are being called in. Uh, Look down with me at the middle of verse 31 of chapter 21. A word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And that's our first heading today, confusion. Uh, The city is stirred up in confusion, a physical confusion. Uh, It's a riot, it's chaos. Uh, But ultimately, at the heart of this confusion is Paul's identity. Uh, Who is he, they say? What is he about? Uh, There's so much identity language in this passage. If you look through, uh, there's Asian, Israelite, Greek, Egyptian, Ephesian, Jew, Gentile, citizen, and Roman. Uh, No one can agree who Paul is. Uh, To the rioting Jews, he is an anti-Jew. Uh, Look down with me at verse 28. Uh, They cried out, men of Israel, help. Uh, This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. We're in Jerusalem, remember, uh, but the Jews leading this riot, they come from far away Ephesus. Uh, They knew about Paul's mission to the Gentiles, to the nations that we've been hearing about, and perhaps how he taught that his non-Jewish converts didn't have to keep the Mosaic law in the same way as Jews. And their assumption is Paul is, of course, obviously anti-Jew. He's teaching against us and against God's law and against this place, the temple. And now part of the reason Paul is in the temple in the first place is to deal with just this sort of accusation 
Uh, the Jerusalem church knew about this, these misleading rumors as they asked him to show his face and get involved in a Jewish vow ritual with some other Jewish background Christians uh, just to show uh, that the rumors about him weren't true. And Paul, who's Jewish, is fine with all of this. Uh, but these Asian Jews visiting from Ephesus have seen Paul about the city, hanging out with someone that they recognize from back home. So they spot Paul in the temple and they just kick off because they assume that they've brought this Gentile guy, Trophimus, into the middle of the temple, um, which, if you know anything about the temple, is an absolute no-no, no Gentiles allowed. And now Trophimus never went into the temple, uh, but as mobs often do, they have put two and two together and made five. Uh, Paul is a temple defiler, they assume. And so they begin a little mob justice. Away with him, they cry. Kill him. Uh, All Jerusalem was in confusion, That's the news that reaches the Roman government in verse 31. And that's confirmed by what happens when the riot police actually arrive. And look down with me at verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. The tribune inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And the crowd, they just can't agree on who Paul is. And the tribune, the Roman commander, isn't very clear. He isn't any clearer. In verse 37, uh, he suggests that he might be some sort of Egyptian anarchist, some sort of Egyptian assassin, and that he's doing the city a very great favor in chaining up this dissident. So imagine his surprise when he learned that Paul, the man being attacked by a Jewish mob, was himself a Jew. And even more his surprise when he discovered that Paul was in fact, a Roman citizen. Uh, This is a passage filled with confusion. And Luke, the the author of this account, he wants us to feel the chaos. Uh, People simply do not know what to do with Paul or his ministry. He doesn't fit into their neat categories of what a Jew should look like, and so they have jumped to conclusions. He's hanging out with Gentiles. So the Jews, they accuse him of being anti-law, anti-temple, and anti-Jewish. Uh, There's a riot forming, so the Roman authorities, they accuse him of being a foreign rebel. Uh, People have jumped to conclusions, and most, well, most are just confused. And while Luke clearly doesn't finish here, there's more of the passage left, we should recognize that this is a normal part of the Christian experience. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised when the world is confused about Christians. Uh, Making assumptions is easier than listening. And if people do not know Jesus they will struggle to understand how gospel-hearted Christians live. Aren't you that church that hates women or hates gay people? Uh, You're a church, but you meet in a school. That's weird. Uh, You're just not like the Christians I see on television. Uh, We are going to meet confusion. Uh, But happily, Luke doesn't leave us with confusion. Uh, Unlike the last time we saw a riot in Acts just a few weeks ago, Paul speaks. You may have noticed he mainly retells his own story. But if you look down at chapter 22, verse 1, he calls this long speech his defense. And that's a word that we'll be hearing a few times over the next couple of weeks, Paul's defenses. We're in a new section of the book of Acts. And bound by Christ, Paul is headed straight for Jerusalem and from then on to Rome. As we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, he spends most of that time bound and in chains, a questioned and on trial. 
But wonderfully, throughout these chapters, he is able to witness to Jesus through these defense speeches that we're going to read. Uh, This is the first, spoken in the middle of a riot. And as he speaks, uh, the confusion that the crowd had turns to clarity. A confusion turns to clarity. What am I about, says Paul? I'll tell you. I am all about God-honoring, faithful ministry. And that's our second heading today. Uh, Clarity. Gospel ministry is faithful ministry. Gospel ministry is faithful ministry. In these chapters already, Paul has been called a rebel, a temple defiler, anti-law and anti-Jewish. But this defense speech is all intended to show that he is the exact opposite. Paul is a faithful Jew. First of all, notice in chapter 21, verse 40. Uh, Paul chooses to address them in the Hebrew language. And again, in chapter 22, verse 2, the Hebrew language. Uh, Brothers and fathers, he begins. Now, I wouldn't go out onto the streets of London and call people brother. At best, I would get weird looks and at worst, something worse. Uh, But Paul can. Uh, He is a Jew talking to other Jews, so brother is perfectly appropriate. Uh, Verse 3, he says, I am a Jew. Born in Tarshish in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. As you hear, Paul is stressing his connection with the crowd. He's stressing his Jewish credentials. Imagine he's pulling out the baby photos of himself at Saturday school. He's had the best schooling from a top rabbi in Jerusalem. Uh, Anti-law, no, he is zealous for God. His zeal even extended, however wrongly, to persecuting Christians, verse 4. I wouldn't put that in my CV, but Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. He's saying to the crowd, I've been where you are right now. And even as he goes on and tells his conversion story, he is emphasizing his Jewishness. Uh, Look at how he describes Ananias, the man who God used to open Paul's eyes. Uh, Look down at verse 12. He calls him a devout man, according to the law, uh, well spoken of by all of the Jews. And Ananias, this upstanding Jew, calls Paul brother and talks about the God of our father. Uh, Ananias, he accepts him. Or look down at verse 17. Paul says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... Uh, Before, uh, during, and after his conversion, Paul was Jewish. And more than that, he was a faithful, obedient, God-honoring, worshipping Jew, accepted by other faithful Jews. Uh, But if you bear with me a moment, it goes just a little bit deeper. He is a faithful Jew doing faithful ministry. Uh, Did you notice the language of witness in this passage as we went along? As Paul recounts his experience on the Damascus road, he calls himself a witness. Uh, Look down at verse 14 and 15. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, God says, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And then I said, Paul saw and heard the living Lord Jesus on the Damascus road. He saw Jesus risen from the dead and seated on the throne of all creation. 
And Jesus gave him a mission, a mission to witness, to testify to people everywhere about what he had seen, to testify, to witness to the fact that Jesus is alive and he reigns. Uh, Paul was meant to be a witness, uh, but this witness language uh, isn't unique to the New Testament. It's actually used of the people of God in the Old Testament. I printed some verses from Isaiah 43 on the service sheets, and that might be a great time to take that up in hand. Uh, This is God speaking to his people, and I'll read it out, Isaiah 43. Uh, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no saviour. Do you hear that? Jews were meant to be witnesses to the Lord. They were meant to declare to the world that their God is the only God and the only saviour. It was built into their job description. And in our passage, that's Paul's mission too. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, to the nations. Uh, Paul isn't doing something new and strange as he tours the Mediterranean, telling all the nations about Jesus. He is a Jew engaged in the work that Jews were always meant to be doing, uh, witnessing to the world about the Lord. And unlike the majority of people of God throughout the Old Testament, Paul is actually doing it. He's faithful. And if you want proof, just look back over the last 10 chapters of Acts. Uh, Listen back on our sermon database. We've been working our way through it. Uh, Paul is a faithful witness. Uh, But what does that matter? I hear you ask. Why should we care about Paul? Uh, Well, Luke has spent the past 10 chapters showing us Paul's ministry. Showing us Paul proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the very ends of the earth even if that means suffering and death. And Luke, his purpose is that we would join in that ministry. Luke wants us to long that people all around the world, and close to us as well, hear about Jesus and follow him. He wants us to be willing to step out of our comfort zone and tell people about Jesus, even if that means suffering for us. And if we're going to join in with this sort of gospel proclaiming ministry, then it really matters that Paul's ministry is genuine and not some sort of shoddy imitation. It matters that Paul, too, is a Colin and not a Cuthbert. We need to be clear, fully convinced that the ministry that we are involved in is really from God, because it is going to be costly. If we're going to be willing to risk our friendships or our work relationships to speak about Jesus, we need to know that this is the mission that God really has given his church. If we're going to make costly decisions about where we live or where we work or how we spend our money, who we spend our time with, we need to be convinced that Paul's sort of ministry, Paul's sort of suffering, gospel proclaiming ministry is what the whole of the Old Testament was pointing to. And not some Pauline innovation, but the eternal plan of God. And if we're ever going to consider, as some of us really should consider, uh, moving ourselves or our families across the world to bring the gospel to unreached places, we need to be convinced 
that the gospel really is the eternal plan of God to save the world. And like Paul says, it really is. When we testify to Jesus, our risen king, we are doing what Israel and indeed what all humanity were made to do. Uh, But it's not just what we do that Luke is interested in. It's who we are, our identity. And we're on to our third heading, confidence. Uh, The gospel church is God's people. Confidence. In these chapters, we don't just see Paul and his ministry. We see two different reactions to his ministry, don't we? And in that reaction, the faithful and unfaithful people of God reveal themselves. Remember, how did the writing crowd react to the clarity that Paul brings in his defense speech? Uh, Did they have an awkward sorry, uh, maybe a joyful shout? Praise God, the gospel, the Gentiles are hearing the gospel. They're hearing about the Lord. Uh, No. Uh, Paul explains his mission to tell the nations about Jesus. And then in verse 22, uh, up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. Just as Jesus predicted, they didn't accept Paul's testimony. Uh, Why? They just couldn't stomach the gospel going out to the world. Now, this isn't just a minor emphasis issue, as if the Jews in the temple were just a bit too focused on their temple discipleship and not enough on world mission. Uh, No, at heart, they are suppressing the truth about Jesus. They don't want Paul's testimony when they hear it. And they certainly do not want this testimony to go out to the world. And what they really like is revealed in this. It's like if a school was hiring a teacher. Imagine they have a number of candidates and like all candidates in a job interview, they talk the talk. I'm caring. I have good class control. I do my bit for the community. But how do you know who to hire? Well, perhaps the solution would be to send in a bunch of little screaming children. And that's when what's real and what's bluff will be revealed. But in this case, rather than a bunch of toddlers, God sends a witness to his chosen king on a mission to tell the world. He sends Paul. And those in the temple, what do they do? Well, they try to kill him. What does Paul find when he goes to the temple? Not a faithful remnant but a rebellious and increasingly hardened people. I remember the temple was the religious establishment in Jerusalem. As the churches in the city met, it would have loomed over them, maybe casting a shadow through the windows of the houses that they were meeting in, in all of its splendor. It was massive, 20 meters high, the courts hundreds of meters long. If anything would have made those first Christians feel like Cuthbert's rather than Collins, it is this the temple. But Luke shows those in it rejected God's word about Jesus. And the fact remains that those who reject the word about Jesus are not God's faithful people. Whether their trappings are Jewish or Christian, whether they meet in grand buildings or old buildings, whether they meet in buildings filled with incense or sacred music or secular music or worship music, those who reject the word about Jesus are not God's faithful people. So where do we find the true people of God in this chapter? Well, look back with me to what happened when Paul first arrived in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 21, verse 17. We didn't hear this read, so you might have to flip back. Chapter 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, 
the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. The contrast couldn't be more stark, could it? This church, probably majority Jewish, they love that the nations are hearing about Jesus. When they meet Paul, they praise God for what the Lord is doing in his life. They welcome Paul gladly and they celebrate what God has done through him. This people, the church, is the true and faithful people of God. And it's obvious. We don't need to look. Acts reminds us that true religion isn't defined by temples or churches or cathedrals or the rituals within them. A true church, true gatherings of God's people are found wherever the gospel is accepted and offered to the world. We do not need to worry when we do not meet the world's expectations for what a Christian is or for what a church is or looks like. We really can be confident Because Luke wants us to see that the true people of God are the people who accept and believe and speak the good news about Jesus and rejoice when it goes to the lost. And I hope that's something that we too are confident of. Uh, We meet in a building like this, but it is not the building that defines us. We might one day leave it. It's not the name or the St. Helens branding, as tasteful as it is. It's not the denomination or the budget the atmosphere or how respectable we are or the quality of music. Uh, What defines us is the gospel. And perhaps our mission committee should say more about us than our building or our music. And if we don't believe this, I might add, how might we ever make costly decisions to reach the lost? Decisions that might lead us out of comfy buildings to places that feel far weaker than this. As a Christian, identity matters. A Christian is a name that people think they understand, and very sadly, a lot more people claim than will be found in heaven. Uh, But Luke shows us today, we do not need to worry. A gospel ministry, sharing in suffering as we testify to Jesus, is faithful ministry. Gospel churches, like this one, weak, misunderstood, but loving the lost, They are the true people of God. We can have real confidence. So on that note, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Christ you have made us your people and kindly involved us in your plan to save sinners. Please give us real confidence in who we are and a real joy in believing and testifying to your risen son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.